Amen. I'd be seated. I'm going to give Tim his pen back before I forget. End up walking off with it. Thank you. Well, let's turn to our uh, text this evening. And before we read the text and get into it, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word. Father, we come to you now and we pray that as we search the scriptures, as we consider the psalm uh, and what it teaches us, that you would bless us, to, uh, open our, our hearts that we might receive your word. May our hearts be the fruitful good ground on which the seed is planted that grows and yields a harvest of 30, 60, even a hundredfold. We pray that you would bless us this evening and encourage us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some psalms that are really long. What's the longest psalm you can think of? Ah, thank you. I, I knew somebody would shout that out. Good. Psalm 119, yes, 176 verses. But, you know, Psalm 119 was actually meant to be memorized. How many of you think you could memorize Psalm 119? How do I know it was meant to be memorized? Because of the arrangement in those eight-verse sections, each verse begins with a Hebrew letter. That was a, uh, what is called a mnemonic device, an, an aid to memory. Uh, and so it was uh, expected that Jewish children would learn and memorize Psalm 119. I have something a little less demanding this evening, but, you know, I think it would be good if we actually could could remember it and think about it, memorize it. And it comes to two psalms prior to Psalm 119, Psalm 117, Psalm 117. It's very short. It's only two sentences. And it says this, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Well, actually, that was three sentences. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, at the end. Well, that was very simple. If we had spent five minutes tonight, you think you could memorize that? You probably could. I have a warning, though. Apparently, memory work gets harder the older you get, which is why it's good to teach children memory work and to memorize the scripture. Uh, but uh, I think I think we could do this. Maybe maybe uh, in a couple weeks when I come back to preach an evening service, I'll have you recite Psalm one seventeen. Like Hebrews, I whisper. Um, sorry, I couldn't resist. The first sentence, actually the first verse, because the first verse actually has a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. The first sentence has this characteristic of Hebrew poetry. If we were talking about English poetry, what would be the main characteristics of English poetry? What was that? Well, there's meter, the rhythm that a poem establishes, uh, and rhyme, rhythm and rhyme, two easy words to remember. Those are characteristics of 
English poetry generally, though not always, not always. Uh, but it is uh, generally those, those things that we look for. Uh, those of us who love to read Shakespeare, uh, well, sometimes he rhymes and sometimes he doesn't. And his rhythm is a unique form of meter called iambic pentameter. You have to go back to your high school literature book and find, dig that out from the cartons of, in your basement or your garage or something and remember what iambic pentameter is. In Hebrew poetry, though, it, the classic mark of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is repetition. Only it's not just saying the same thing over again. It also adds something the second time. So you have here, praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. It's the same thought, but expressed in slightly different words. And the second second part of that that, uh, repetition amplifies and expands a little bit the... the, uh, the first part. So praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Now, I want this to be a little bit more than a Hebrew grammar lesson, because what this psalm, what this first sentence of the psalm introduces is a thought that strangely would have been foreign to many Jewish people, particularly in the days of Jesus and, and, and Paul. And that is that the nations would be called to worship the Lord. The Gentile peoples would be commanded to come and worship the Lord. And this, this comes as a command. It comes as a command to go out and all the nations of the earth praise the Lord. All the nations, yes, those very same nations, those very same people who worship idols are commanded to praise and extol the Lord. This was the distinctive ministry of the Apostle Paul, though. He was given a, he's, he sometimes calls it, at least in the old King James Version, which many of us grew up with, a dispensation. Now, Paul was not a dispensationalist, but he the translators used that, that word, meaning he had been given a special area of responsibility, a special charge to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And through the Apostle Paul, the church, uh, rising from the preaching of the gospel, the church was planted all through the Mediterranean area, uh, all through what we today call the land of Turkey, uh, the seven churches of Asia Minor that are mentioned in, uh, in the book of Revelation, several of them founded by the Apostle Paul, uh, are, are in that area, but all around the Mediterranean into, into Italy, into Greece, into those other nations, even, we believe, out as far as Spain. There's a, a two-year period in the life of Paul between his first and second imprisonment where we don't know exactly where he was during this two-year period, but he had expressed a desire earlier to go all the way to Spain. It's entirely possible that Paul reached Spain, and from Spain the gospel went into other lands, France, what we call Germany. It wasn't called Germany back then. Uh, it wasn't even called France back then. 
uh, into what became Great Britain, Scotland, Wales, and so forth. The gospel spread, and the nations of the earth were called to praise the Lord and extol him. From those nations, it spread through the whole world. It's important for us to remember that while we read in Scripture that God's grace comes to to us, we, we, like the Jews, are not the only ones. We, we can never be satisfied to, uh, to huddle together as, well, as some people somewhat derisively call us, the frozen chosen. Can we not be the frozen chosen, really? I mean, that's embarrassing. It's also insulting. We should be above all people, warm, outreaching, filled with joy that the gospel goes to the nations of the earth, filled with with hope that wherever the word of God is preached, souls will be saved and brought to know the Lord Jesus Christ and brought to worship the the, the true and living God. That ought to motivate us. It ought to drive us forward. We we should never uh, give up. We should never look at the world's situation and say the world is beyond hope. Well, first of all, the Lord controls who is saved out of the world. We don't. We have a specific task to do, to give this command, and to back it up with the proclamation of the Word of God in all the nations of the earth. We call the nations of the earth to praise the Lord and to extol Him. And the Bible looks to the more distant future, and it actually says this will happen. This will happen. Remember what we read in Psalm 22, the psalm that focuses primarily on the crucifixion of the Son of the the Messiah. In fact, I I heard a sermon once that said, Psalm, and if you read Psalm Psalm 22, if you read that psalm, it's, it's written in the first person. The person relating the psalm is the person who is being, who is suffering. I once heard a, a sermon, the pastor said this, Psalm 22 is Jesus' own commentary on his crucifixion. Now think about that. We, we often don't think about it that way. But that's really what it is. But notice the end of that psalm. The end of that psalm comes and says very clearly, all the ends of the earth, that's the nations, those are the nations beyond Israel, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship. Now it's not a command. Now it's a statement of fact. It's going to happen. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The nations do not seem to recognize this at the time, but one time they will, that the Lord reigns over the nations. He reigns now, providentially, he reigns now uh, through his sovereign power and providence. But a time comes when he reigns very specifically with his justice and his, uh, and his authority over the nations of the earth. 
The psalm goes on, though, doesn't end with that one statement. The next sentence says this, For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Notice the repetition. But it's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same, but there is a repetition of a thought. The thing that binds these two sections together are the word steadfast and the word endures. When we think of steadfast, we think of something that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved. It will, it will uh, remain uh, strong. The Lord is steadfast in his love. His love cannot be shaken. When we think of something that endures, it's very similar. Uh, it, it doesn't wear out. It lasts forever. Of course, in other Psalms, we read that the, the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. The faithfulness of the Lord uh, is from generation to generation and so forth. The steadfast love of the Lord. We studied this several weeks ago, a psalm which repeated over and over again, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. So these are related concepts, but not quite the same. We're going to look at two things in particular, though, that are mentioned here. The steadfast love of God and his enduring faithfulness. If you were stranded on a, an island, shipwrecked, and you needed help, and you needed a couple of things to sustain your life, what are, what are a couple of things that you would need on a desert island, on, on a shipwrecked on an island? You would need water, and you would need food. Two things that keep us alive. Two things in this psalm that we absolutely need and we must we must build our our life around these these principles these thoughts here they will keep us going they will keep us on the straight path they will keep us from losing heart losing uh confidence in this life there are many things that shake our faith but our faith is not something we have devised in our own self. Our faith is a gift from this unchanging God. And then the rock of our faith, the foundation of our faith, the object of our faith does not change. And so the assurance that we have in his steadfast love and enduring faithfulness, that assurance cannot be shaken either. When the Bible uses the term steadfast love, it clearly means a love that cannot be broken, a love that will not be shaken, a love that will endure, a love that doesn't change. It's often taught that this love is expressed to God's people in the terms of covenant promises, the covenants of God. We sometimes talk about a covenant of grace, in which God expresses his, his promises to save us through Jesus Christ, through his Redeemer. This covenantal love comes to us verbally in the context of his covenants 
And what does the Bible tell us over and over about the covenants and promises of God? They do not fail. They cannot be broken. Paul expresses this, and perhaps, and you know this passage, it expresses this in the words that are beautiful, uplifting, and remind us of this unbreakable, covenantal love that comes to us through Jesus Christ, it comes to us through his ministry as our Redeemer. Who, Who can separate us? from the love of God, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Any of these things, any of these things, and each of these things poses a challenge to our faith. Lord, why are you making me endure this? Why why are you allowing us to go through persecution? Why are you uh, not feeding us or clothing us? Or why is there tribulation, troubles and trials in this world, distress and so forth? Why, Lord, are you not there? Do you not know? Do you not see your people suffering? Do you not love us? And God's answer is, I always loved you. I have always loved you, and I will always love you. Do not look at what sometimes we call a frowning providence, a frowning providence, and judge God's love for his people based on that frowning providence. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? And Paul picks up on verse 36, and he says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Well, that's sure a sign of God's love, isn't it? No, but it is. It should not. Even this most extreme statement here, that we are counted as sheep for the slaughter, we are killed all the day long, that is not a sign that God does not love us. By the way, What did Jesus tell us? How did he summarize the life of his people? He said, take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. We are killed all the day long. We are are counted as sheep for the slaughter. No, we are, I mean, put it rather bluntly, Jesus tells us to be crucified every day with him, and bear the cross. That is not saying that God does not love us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. God's love doesn't alleviate the troubles we go through, but he helps us overcome. His love is there so that we overcome these challenges. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Did you notice there's, a again, these lists that Paul makes? <laughs> in the first list, he talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. What are those? Those things are things that are associated with this world, with this existence, this life. And this is the, this is the world we live in. This is the world we are aware of through our senses. Our consciousness uh, is, is in this world. But we also know there's a world that's outside of our ability to sense with our five senses, our seeing, our hearing, our, our tasting and touching and so forth. With our senses, there is a world beyond that. And notice the second list focuses on that other world. The list in which he says, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, whether things outside of our ability to, to sense them, they are all part of God's creation. Angels are part of his creation. Powers, part of his creation. Nothing in this creation, whether the things here on earth or the things above, can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. This is why we need to memorize this psalm. There are times in our lives when we are troubled. There are times in our lives when we suffer loss or hardships of some kind. And if the tempter comes in, he can tempt us and try to subvert our faith by whispering in our ear, you think God loves you. How could a God love you and allow you to go through this? God doesn't love you. And by the way, you're such a wretched disappointment and sinner that he has every reason not to love you. But the word of God stands sure. When Satan tempted Christ, Christ fought back with the word of God. And the word of God tells us that the love, the steadfast love of the Lord endures it does not fail. It cannot be taken away. The steadfast love is great. Moreover, his faithfulness endures forever. He is a God who does not change. His love does not change. His grace does not change. His justice does not change. And his faithfulness does not change. He does not forget. Psalm 138, verse 2 says this, The psalmist writes, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name. For your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. 
Think about that. Let me read it again. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I, giving, I, I bow and worship toward the temple. And I give thanks for your name. And what does your name tell me? It tells me that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness because you do not change. Your name teaches me the, these things. Steadfast love and faithfulness. And then he says this, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Above all things your name and your word. You see, those are, those are established for us to be the, the, the guiding light, the beacon that shines in a dark night of suffering. A dark night when temptation can shake our confidence in the love and faithfulness of God. We worship God along with the psalmist and give thanks to his name, for his name. Uh, give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness stands behind the promises of the covenant. Many people question whether God could somehow abrogate it. Oh, I just found my pen. Huh. God could somehow... See, I forget and I lose things. God does not forget and he doesn't lose things. God does not forget his covenants and he does not renounce his covenants. You might say, well, what about Israel? What about Judah and Israel? Didn't God renounce his covenant with them? Well, I want to remind you of a, a passage in Scripture, and it's a striking passage from the book of Jeremiah. And remember, at this time, Israel and Judah have been, have been in captivity. They're gone. And judgment is still coming, but it, it has already begun. God has already declared that this nation has broken his covenants and the and the pro, the promised judgments and punishments are on the way and happening even now. But in the middle of all that, God speaks to the people of Israel and Judah. Israel has already been scattered. Judah's under attack and being taken captive. And God says through Jeremiah, he says this, there will be a day when I, I take the sticks, take two sticks, and bind them together again. One represents Israel, one represents Judah. I will bind them. And he says in another place in Jeremiah, if you can break my covenant of the day and night, and that is basically if you can by your own power reach up into the heavens and stop the sun and moon in their tracks so they do not, uh, they do not rise and set in their orderly and regular habits. If you can do that, you can break my covenant with Israel. Now, that same covenant faithfulness belongs to you and me. It is secured for God's people through Christ. It is secured. That's why he's called our surety. He's the guarantee. He's the one who, who holds the bill of sale, if you will, that says all the debts are paid. His enduring faithfulness to all generations, 
we live in a time of uncertainty. Well, and, and I'm certainly not the first person that said that, nor is this the first time that people have said we live in a time of uncertainty. People are always, today. I'm 71 years old. I can remember when I was a little kid. We live in a time of great uncertainty. Well, yeah, we had the Cold War. We had all kinds of things going on. If I had lived in the 1800s or if we had lived together in the, in the middle of the 1800s during the Civil War, someone would have said we live in times of great uncertainty, times of great change. But God doesn't change. The world around us changes rapidly. The technology that we have seems to have spread or have sped up the changes that we see very rapidly. But God does not change. We need to hold on to this psalm, this tiny little three-sentence psalm that ends with praise the Lord. And we need to hold on to this psalm in times of trouble when Satan tempts us. If I may be so bold as to say, we need to throw this psalm in his face. Just like Jesus quoted Scripture back to Satan. No, I rest secure in God's steadfast love. I rest secure in his enduring faithfulness. Praise the Lord. Get behind me, Satan. You cannot discourage me. You cannot shake my faith in, in God. Paul puts it this way, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day, that day is that great eschatological day, day of the Lord. I know whom I have believed. It's not the strength of our faith. It's the enduring, unchanging character of God. Pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our faith in you, we would realize that our faith in you is not misplaced, but we would, we would hold on to the, the truths of this short little psalm. It, it's a tiny little gem uh, uh, filled with truth that sustains us. Pray that when Satan dis seeks to discourage us, to shake our faith, that we would be strengthened by remembering that your steadfast love toward us is great and that your faithfulness endures forever. And rather than succumbing to disappointment or fear or doubt or even anger, we would instead shout with the people, praise the Lord, that we would bear each other up and remind each other. We see brothers and sisters, perhaps in our own church, who are going through difficult times. And we would bear them up and remind them of your steadfast love and, un, un, and enduring faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us, and we know that you are always with us. And for this we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.